Also, too, the children may be dismissed. Uh, good morning, my name is Jeremy. What my wife forgot to tell you is I get the microphone last. <laughs> Just putting that out there, babe. Uh, Doug Fern came to me and asked me if I'd be interested in preaching because he said he could find no one else within an 80-mile radius to do it. Uh, I did see Wade over here. I don't know if that's a reflection on you dodging Fern or his thoughts on your preaching. So I'll, I'm just, uh, just going to put that out there a little bit. i got to tease the pastors every once in a while. I did know, though, I came in as a member of the congregation, and we get these kind of worship things, and down here it says pastor. So I talked to a couple of the elders. It's a title only for today. Uh, no compensation, apparently, for that. I was a little, little disappointed in that. All right, those are the lame jokes to get us started uh, here. Um, I want to welcome you uh, to East Campus. I have the great opportunity of opening God's Word and sharing it with you. I would like to read the passage today. It comes from Amos 4. It's a very, boy, interesting, challenging um, message here. And so let's just go ahead and read it, and then we'll, we'll jump into it. Amos 8, 4. I know there's some Bibles around. If you need one, someone can definitely get one to you. Just hold your hand up. We have plenty of them. Craig's doing that. So while he's getting you a Bible, uh, read with me. Hear this, you who trample on the needy, and bring the poor to, a land, to the land and to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephod small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on his account and everyone mourn who dwells in it and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentations. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning of, for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor of thirst for water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake. And shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will reach, I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens, 
and founds his vaults upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. I'll go ahead and stop there. Will you pray with me? God, I just ask that you bless our time together. Um, Just really excited about being able to share this with you as hard as the message may actually be and the challenges that, that it is. Let's pray that you just give me the words here and the clarity of mind to share what it is that you have here in Amos. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, we've been looking at the book of Amos for some time. So what I'd like you to do is with the people around you, I'd like you to start to refresh. You guys have heard a number of sermons on it. Just tell the neighbors around you who Amos was and talk about a little bit of the setting or the context of the, the, the book. See if you can recall that. And then I'm going to call on you, right? So you have to... This is, I'm a teacher. I'm a former teacher, right? This is how we do things. This is called pop quiz in the education world here. All right, what did, what did a group come up with? Tell me about Amos. What do you know about him? Say again? He was a prophet. Somebody went for the low-hanging fruit to get that one right out of the way, right? <laughs> Ten points for you. What else do we got? He was a farmer. What type of farmer? Arborist. Yep, he dealt with trees, right? Good. What else do we know about him? I hear chattering. He's what? He was from the south part, yep, of Judah, and he was sent to the northern part. Yep, you're exactly right. What else do we know about him? One other thing. His name was Amos. His name was Amos. Okay. <laughs> she's, she's a quick study. I'm just telling you right now, she's a quick study. He was Amos, yes. He was also a shepherd. So go ahead and put up the first slide here a little bit. We know that Amos was from the southern kingdom. I circled Tekoa. It's just south of Bethlehem in in Jerusalem area, actually about 20 miles south of Jerusalem, uh, right off the Dead Sea. And he was called to the northern kingdom to mostly preach in Samaria. You see there's a couple of stars up there. Samaria was the capital up there, and he was called from the southern kingdom of Israel to the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, Somewhere around the time like 780 B.C.-ish in there. So we're talking about 2,700 years ago or so is when the book of Amos uh, was delivered. And as we look back on Amos from 2019, we look back, we see that the message that he delivered essentially had no effect on the northern kingdom. The words that he gave them returned no repentance. We know that the prophecies he gave about destruction and about judgment all came true. And so what we see in Amos is that sometimes when we speak what is given from the Lord, it doesn't always return the desired effect that we have. I can give you an example of one time I was a young Christian and God laid on my heart one of my buddies named Chad. I knew Chad didn't know Jesus. For like six months I prayed for Chad. I didn't even know where Chad was. We had lost contact over a number of times. And I'm driving through my small town one day And no joke, Chad walks across the street in front of me. It's like, this is the dude I've been praying for for like six months. And some of you are like, you got to be fired up at this point. I was. I set an appointment with Chad. I knew I was supposed to tell Chad about Jesus. And I'm telling you, I killed it. I delivered like the greatest testimony evangelism. Like I walked him through scripture. And at the end, he was like, yeah, no thanks. And I was like, wait a minute. Like, what just happened here? And I think sometimes we think that God's call, me sharing that call, equals converts. And what we know is this. The justification for speaking the word of God is not the certainty of converts, but it is the certainty of God's call on your life and on my life. Happy to say two weeks later, 
Chad gave his life to Jesus by watching a televangelist on TV. <laughs> yeah, it's not that funny. <laughs> Praise you, Jesus, for what you did. Why not me was a little bit my prayer there for a while. I had to check my own heart there a little bit because the formula is not that. And we see this formula in Amos. We see this formula in Amos. Uh, if you flip with me to Amos 7.15, so it's hard just to preach on chapters uh, 8, 4 through 9, 10 without building some context. I don't know if you heard Doug Fern say, essentially you could kind of preach Amos in one, one message because it's kind of the same theme all the way through. So I'm going to do a little review. We're at the end of the book here. We're kind of going to go back and build some pieces because we have to have those pieces in place in order to get to, to chapter 8 and the first part of chapter 9. So Amos 7.15 says, The Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me, go and prophesy to, my, to Israel. That's all Amos needed. God didn't tell him, if you prophesy, X number of converts is going to happen. The call of God on his life was good enough. And the call on our lives should be good enough. And if you think that Amos went and prophesied to an entire nation, God kept it for us in the Bible, and it returned no converts, then we shouldn't think it's so unique sometimes when we share the gospel with our chads of our life and it doesn't turn out to have the fruit but we don't know what God's up to we don't know his underlying thoughts we don't know his unseen purposes we don't know the plans that he has that are hidden from us so the calling on our life is enough for us to go and share the gospel and I want to challenge you with that but I also don't want to cast judgment on the book of Amos saying well then maybe we shouldn't study it no, part of these studies, the entire Bible, God preserved us for us for this amount of time. So there's probably something that we can learn here at Parkview East Campus, and there's a reason God kept it in the Bible, and we're going to take a look at that. All right, everybody got one of these when they came in, or should have. Somebody at the front door was very smiley and happy handing these to you. Uh, this is where you can keep some notes. So what I want you to do is I, I, I borrowed. Can you steal something from a pastor? Yeah, I borrowed it from John Piper. This is a really cool illustration. So what I want you to do is I want you to draw a tree on here because this is going to help us kind of flow through how this works. So if you have a pen or paper, draw a tree on here. And we're going to take a look at a couple of different things. One, the trunk is the judgment that we find in Amos. We're going to take a look at the roots, and that's what's kind of feeding that judgment. And then there are a few branches. This is a little exaggerated on the number of branches in Amos. There's like two branches up there in Amos and ways to get out. But we're going to take a look at those. So I want you to kind of keep this picture in the back of your head. Uh, it's a great way to kind of jot down and, and trip, trip your trigger as we're going through it. So first, let's do a little refresher on, on the judgment. I know Fern's preached on this a couple of times. This is a big trunk, big, massive trunk, big, dark, unavoidable trunk. And this is the relentless prediction of the judgment that is coming to the people of the northern kingdom from Amos. And Amos talks about this in 5, 18 through 20. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into his house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? And then there's a phrase in Amos 1, the very beginning of the, of the book of Amos, and it sets really the tone for the entire book, and it's Amos 1-2. And it says, the Lord roars out of Zion. And you hear that theme of the Lord roaring out of Zion throughout this entire book over and over and over again. 
And that's the key note of it. Amos 4.12 kind of echoes that. It says, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. And that is the massive trunk of the tree of judgment is the terrible day of the Lord is coming for those who do not know the Lord. Those who don't know God and those who have gone astray from God. And so what he is saying is, as you rebel, you will meet him like a ravenous lion. If you try to run, you're going to meet him like a bear who has been stolen of her cubs. And if you run into your house, it's going to be like a rattlesnake on your windowsill that's going to bite you. Therefore, be prepared to meet your God, O Israel, is what he's saying with the trunk of the tree. So why is this trunk so massive? Why is it so gnarly? What gives it its strength and its weight? There's a couple of things that does, and it is the picture of God. It's who God is. I have an eight-year-old. Sometimes the eight-year-old decides to cast some judgment on dad. Okay. The weight of that is not all that scary, is it, right? Like she's like, I'm going to go tell mom. That makes it a little scarier when she goes to tell mom, right, as you work your way up. Amos, what he does is now starts to paint a picture of why is it so impressive of this thing. And we look in Amos 13. For lo, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of the host, is his name. He sculpts the mountains with his hands. He knows your thoughts and what you're going to say before it even crosses your lips. And he has the ability to step from the Rocky Mountains to the Himalayas in one step. And Amos is starting to paint this picture of, of who God is and the judgment that he is bringing down. In Amos 5.8, he says this just to ponder God. He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into morning and the darkness of the day into night. He calls the waters from the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. I wanted to stop for a second. Like, I love space. So when he starts talking about Pleiades and Orion, like, all of a sudden I get fired up here. I don't know if you're aware, but this is the 50th anniversary of us putting a human being on the moon, which is quite impressive. When you, until you start to actually think about the galaxies and the solar system and what's out there, if you look and start to count all the different stars, I get bored. Does anybody have Alexa? I like to ask Alexa questions. I asked Alexa last night, how many galaxies are out there? Anybody know an answer? 100 billion. 100 billion is what they estimate. Do they really know? I don't think they really know, but this is what they're estimating. So then I said, well, how many stars are in each of those galaxies? And there's about 100 billion stars in each galaxy. And we are just have like one pretty average star in, in ours, right, called the sun, which if you've been out the last few days can, can do something, do some damage from quite a distance away. And so what we've done here is we have what we call our solar system here. This is an artist's rendition of it because we can't actually get far enough away to take a picture of it. So this is our little corner of the universe. And if you notice, the sun is one of those little tiny average stars in there. And it's 100,000 light years across. I don't know if you're familiar with the light year, but a light year is about 5.8 trillion miles in one year. And you're like, okay, well, that sounds fast. Yes, it is fast, in case you were wondering. <laughs> a light can circle the Earth seven and a half times a second, 1,001 
seven and a half times, 1,002, seven and a half times. And this is 100,000 light years away. And so this is us, right? Well, I wonder if Amos had a couple of pieces of technology that we have. I wonder if his mind wouldn't be a little bit blown. In 1977, we launched this thing called Voyager 1, and we sent it on a mission. It was a one-way mission, wasn't going to come back, and all of us do is just to collect pictures and send them back to us to start to tell us about how big of the, the, the neighborhood was that we lived in. And so some of the pictures it sent back were of Jupiter, pretty cool, had some really sweet pictures of Saturn and Neptune, and this thing just kept cruising and cruising by. But what happened was there's the most famous photo that it sent, the most beautiful photo that I think that it did. When it was out there about 4 billion miles from Earth, we asked it to turn around and take a little snapshot of where it had come from. And what it did is it sent back this photo that is ragingly famous, and I want to put that photo up here. That is awesome, isn't it? This guy over here is like, what is wrong with this guy, right? <laughs> well, let me, let me blow it up for you just a little bit because maybe you can't see it. That's Earth. That's you and that's me. And this photograph is called the pale blue dot. And for me, it's just like starts to get some perspective on how big this God is and what the thing he has. And so when Amos is talking about the judgment of God, it's no mamby-pamby little God. He's calling for really grave concern. And when we start to right-size our God, things start to change significantly in our lives. Psalms 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork wonder why it's all there. I think David probably had a pretty good idea of why it was all there. And so this is where we pick up then in Amos 9.5. It's part of the message that we read today. He pauses again before this God. The Lord, the God of hosts, he who touches the earth and melts it. Imagine touching something and being able to melt it and the entire earth, that pale blue dot. And all who dwell in it mourn. And all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt. He who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds the vaults upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea. I wonder how he calls them. Like maybe I call my dog. Come here, waters of the sea. That's just like a crazy thought to me. And he pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. So what, imagine now in nine, we just read this the judgment of God, the size of God. Amos is putting that together. Read Amos 9.4 and just carry the weight that that has now. If God, the God of the universe, says, I will set my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. It's concerning. So the large, strong, unavoidable trunk of this prophecy is the fierce judgment of God coming on the northern kingdom of Israel. And that's coming because the Assyrians eventually will take them out into captivity. And the day of the Lord is darkness and not light for those who love darkness and do not love the Lord. The creator and ruler of all things is going to come roaring out of Zion against his enemies. So prepare to meet your God, O Israel, is the message of Amos. Okay, so now we talked about the trunk. 
Let's go down and talk about the roots. So if you're an artist and you like drawing or you're just tired of listening to me already, uh, there's a couple of things that you can draw. One is the tap root. So go ahead and draw a tap root on your paper. And then we're going to take a look at three roots that kind of help support this trunk and give it some of its weight. The tap root of God is, is going to be the forsaking of God. So if you want to write that, the tap root of God is forsaking God. Uh, what we see in Amos 4, 6 through 11... Amos describes these kind of acts of correction. So he gives us some acts of correction where God's trying to like move his people back in line with what he wants them to do. But the result is the same in, in 6 through 11. And so I'm going to go ahead and put it up here uh, and then you can kind of see what the result is. I'm not going to read the correction part or the chastisement part. I'm just going to read, read the part of the result. So in verse 6, it says, after he gives them some chastisement and correction, Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Keep going. Verse 8. Yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Verse 9. Yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Verse 10. Yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Verse 11. Yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Could Amos make it any clearer that the roots that are causing the judgment of God is that the people have not turned their hearts back to God, even after several corrective measures? And you're like, okay, so what does this look like? Amos lays it out in several different things, and some of them we've heard about. In 526, it talks about idolatry. You shall take up Sakuth, your king, and Kaiwan, your star god, your images for which you have made for yourself. Therefore, I will take you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. So they had idols that they were worshiping. They did not return to God. Also in here, in Amos 2.7, it talks about their sexual behavior. Some are like, oh, it just got real here for a second. A man and his father go into the same maiden so that my holy name is profaned. Do you see the connection there? His holy name is profaned by the sexual conduct. And I would argue that all sexual conduct outside of what God calls us to be into is the indifference to God's holy name. Lots of people are coming to church, they sing the songs, they know the passage, but yet in their sexual lives, they haven't really asked the question, is what I am doing with him or her honoring to God? Does he look down upon that and smile on other relationship? And when we compartmentalize God, like, I'm okay with God here, but maybe not in this section of our life, that's just God and a preparation for the judgment of God according to Amos. I'll move on. So we're like, oh good, I don't struggle with either of those two. Okay, how about this one? Another subtle way they reject God in, is in Amos 4, 4 through 5. It's how they worship. We talked a little bit about this. The, uh, Amos uses some biting sarcasm to indict the hypocrisy of his people in that passage. So listen to the sarcasm in Amos's voice. Come to Bethel. Bethel was the place. So remember Jerusalem's in the southern kingdom. I showed the map. They had, because Jerusalem was supposed to be where they worshipped, they had to set up places of worship in the northern kingdom. Bethel, Gilgal, some of those other ones were places where they did that. So here's Amos's thing to the northern kingdom. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifice every morning, your tithe every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. 
that which is leaven, and proclaim a free will offering. Publish them, for, love you, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, says the Lord God. And then he goes on to really slam home this point in 5, 21 through 24. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your cereal offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted beasts, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amos is a devastating book for people who give token worship to God. If you come in here and you're masking or putting on the mask of worship to maybe please those around you or people that are in your circle, all the while your heart is tethered to something of this earth, God despises your worship. He hates it. It's like a clanging gong to him. He will not accept it. So we can cover those things. We can mask them in our worship. But God despises our solemn assemblies and our offerings and even our songs. So the taproot of Israel's sin was that their heart was far from God. And even with their tithes and their offerings and their songs and their worships, they were masking at all those things. But the good part is, in, in 5, a little bit later in that passage, or in that passage, five, chapter 5, 4 to 6, he actually does call them back to repentance. And the call is this, and we're going to talk about it a little bit later, but the call is, seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Bathsheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing, says the Lord. Seek me and live. In other words, get real with God. Don't equate him with a place of worship. Don't equate him with Parkview. He's a person. He wants to be heard. He wants communion with you. He wants you to pray to him. He wants you to worship him. He wants you to listen. He wants your heart to be tethered to him, not to other things. Least he break out in fire on the house of Joseph is how that passage ends. Okay, so that's the tap root. Uh, there's three roots that kind of go into this, and this is where we start to get into the passage that we have in chapter eight. Uh, first one is the addiction to luxury. So Israel did not return to the Lord, and so out of this tap root comes a few other roots that start to feed the rebellion against God, which then feed that judgment trunk. Uh, it actually starts in Deuteronomy 8:17. It's when God, they're getting ready to enter into the promised land, and God gives them this warning. And the warning is, my power and might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. And he says, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is God, it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers of this day. And if you forget the Lord your God, I solemnly warn you that on that day you shall surely perish. So he gives them this warning before they enter the promised land. And Amos actually goes back and really references that part in 6.13. Because here's what the northern kingdom was, was saying. And here's what they were doing. Amos says, you rejoice in Lodabar. You rejoice in a thing of naught or of a thing of nothing. And say, have we not by our own strength taken Karnaim for ourselves? So what had happened was God had allowed the people to prosper, and what their prosperity did was ultimately turn into their destruction. 
they fell in love with the things of the earth. They started to become addicted to and boast in their own wealth. And in Amos 6.8, this is the Lord's response. The Lord God had sworn by himself. That's an interesting thought that God is swearing on his own name. That God has sworn by himself, I abhor the pride of Jacob and I hate their strongholds. So when God ceases to be the treasure of our heart, and we give ourselves to the comfort and the luxuries, and we become addicted to that, we start to forget what it is that God has done for us, and we start to be indifferent to honesty, and we actually become hard-hearted against the poor, which are the other two roots. So Amos does slam the lovers of comfort in 6.1, and we heard a little bit about these folks. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure in the mountains of Samaria. And in verse 4, he says, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches. Verse 6, Who drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils. And here's the kicker of it all. Who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with oil, but, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Does that sound like anyone in the church today where we're more concerned about our comforts and our pleasures and we haven't been grieved for the loss? We are experts, I think, at loving ourselves and taking care of ourselves. And sometimes we have a hard time looking at the people around us and pouring ourselves into those folks and loving those folks and have this deep grief for them. So take heed and guard your hearts diligently, lest you find yourselves in slaves to comfort and, addiction to, and addicted to luxury. Anybody have the time? I just want to make sure I'm not killing my wife out there with all the little kids. What? 20 after. All right, we'll try to wrap it up here in just a quick minute. There's two other roots out there. She threatened me, by the way. She said you can't go over a certain amount of time or there's, there's many things to follow. So uh, root two is an indifference to honesty. And so we see this throughout. I'm actually going to kind of move on from that one because we don't have quite enough time to go into it. But the reason why I'm building these roots, so we have a tap root, uh, and the tap root is they've turned their hearts from God. Uh, this other root that's feeding into it is addiction to luxury. There's an indifference to honesty. And then this is where we find root number three comes out of our passage today. And it starts in Amos 8.4. And this is where there's a hard-heartedness against the poor. So these people were so concerned about their own wealth, their own comfort, that they became dishonest. And you can see that we talked about it too. They started to, to mix up the scales and they weren't uh, quite selling things right. They were shortchanging people. And so in 8 of four through six, there's this hard-heartedness against the poor. And this is how the passage reads. Hear this, you who trample upon the needy and bring the poor to the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephod small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the refuse of the wheat. These roots that feed the wrath of God in Amos... And Amos's day are very similar roots that feed the wrath of God into our day. And that is our turning away from God, even when we cloak it or hide it in our worship, in our songs, at church. It's addiction to luxury and comfort, and it's indifference to honesty, and it's a hard-heartedness against the poor.
But we're in luck here because God does offer us some branches of this tree. There's a few, and I touched on one of them. Amos 5.6, if you should circle Amos 5.6 in your Bible, it is the hope of Amos 5.6, and I've already touched on it. Seek the Lord and live. The whole message is trying to turn the people back, turn the people back, turn the people back. Don't have your hearts to the things of this world. Turn the people back. And it's just this constant turning back, turning back, turning back. And Amos is the keystone. The, the passage in this thing is 5-6. Seek the Lord and live. That's the hope, is to convert from your ways and turn to the Lord through Jesus Christ. Some of you may say, well, I've sought the Lord. So what does seeking the Lord look like in 5, 14, and 15? Seek good and not evil that you may live, and so that the Lord God of hosts will be with you. As he has said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gates. And it may be that the Lord then will be gracious, of, the God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of evil. Can you imagine if we had a church full of people who didn't, give a rip about luxury and comfort, but were willing to pour themselves out for those around them. I see it going on in our church on a regular basis. People are pouring themselves out, pushing away comfort, and they're starting to love those who are in need. And that we would be grieved for those who are lost. Church, we're the only people on the planet that can start to do that in our communities, right? We carry the greatest message of all through Jesus Christ. And the call on our lives to share that, it's the greatest thing that we will ever have to do. I'd like to close then uh, with 8, because here's the ultimate, 8.11. So uh, Amos 8.11. If we don't turn, if we don't listen to God's corrective action, react, uh, corrective actions that he's taking on our lives. Here's what Amos 8 says towards the end of Amos in the book. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor of thirst, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Our heart can't be full, full, full of the things of this world, so full that we have no space in it for the word of the Lord. Amos is warning us through the book. He's warning us over and over again. Turn away. Seek the Lord. He doesn't want this church to be a place that's famined from hearing the word of the Lord. And I'm so happy we have pastors like Wade and Doug Fern and all the other guys who have preached here, Dave Foster, who have come and preached on a regular basis because they are teaching us the word of the Lord. And there's no famine in this place if we turn our hearts from that and listen to the passages that they have to say. And that just warms my heart. In closing, I'd like to read the passage that my, that my wife read because I think it is very appropriate closing. So I'm kind of bookending it with the same passage, and that's Psalms 19, 9 through 16. This is my prayer, so if you want to kind of pray this with me, I think that would be great. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? by living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips, I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. 
I will rejoice in following your statues as one rejoices in great riches. I'll meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees and I will not neglect your word. Amen.